Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta, talking about the things that matter most in the U.S. uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops are gathered together in Baltimore for their annual fall assembly. It got kicked off today. Matthew Bunsen is there. He'll be joining us live in a few minutes from Baltimore to bring us uh, up to speed on what the U.S. bishops are uh, looking at. Uh, There's always a full agenda uh, when they're there, and it'll be interesting. I I did hear that there was a... uh, Archbishop uh, Timothy Brolio, who's president of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, uh, gave a, a note this morning uh, in which he was disagreeing with a, a, an interview that was given by um, Cardinal uh, Christophe Pierre, who's the papal nuncio. Very different impressions of the church in America. I'll don't know if uh, Matthew had a chance to hear that exchange, but uh, we'll we'll talk about it if so. Um, also coming up today, uh, we're going to be listening to Dr. Uh, Lee Warren, neurosurgeon, who has written a very gritty and moving book called I've Seen the End of You. He's going to share with us how he remains on solid ground with his faith. In, when he's dealing with very desperate life-and-death situations. And then in the second hour, uh, our friend Dr. Ray Garendi joins me. Well, actually, it's a, he's joined me already. This is a, a conversation that he and I had uh, a while back, and I wanted to share it with you. <laughs> it's the absolute worst things that marriage therapists have heard. And... Uh, Ray always has a way of looking at these things to make us see the <laughs> the humorous side of things. I was going to say the bright side of things, but sometimes no. Sometimes it's a little darkness there. So we're going to talk about the absolute worst things marriage therapists have heard. But first, let's get to today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Tuesday, November 14th, it's the Feast of St. Lawrence O'Toole. Today's news brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. The USCCB Fall Assembly is underway in Baltimore. The meeting began with a series of elections. Archbishop Paul Coakley of Oklahoma City was chosen as the secretary-elect and chairman-elect of the Committee on Priorities and Plans. Among the other elections, Bishop David O'Connell of Trenton, New Jersey, will lead the Committee on Catholic Education, and Bishop Daniel Thomas will lead the Committee on Pro-Life Activities. Matthew Bunsen joining us with a live report right after this break. A Finnish Court of Appeal has dismissed all charges of hate speech against lawmaker Pavi Rosanen. She was charged in 2021 for a 2019 tweet in which she criticized her Lutheran denomination for embracing LGBTQ ideology asking how those views could be reconciled with Scripture. She was initially acquitted last year by a district court, but prosecutors appealed that decision. 
She faced potential fines of tens of thousands of euros, as well as two years in prison. Like the district court's ruling, the Court of Appeals' decision today was unanimous. Tens of thousands of people are part of the March for Israel in Washington, D.C. at this hour. It's happening on the National Mall. Let me be very clear. The United States stands unequivocally with our neighbor, our friend, our ally, Israel. House Speaker Mike Johnson Louisiana says the March for Israel unites both Republicans and Democrats. The National Guard has been called in, but there are no reports of any violence so far. And stocks are soaring to one of its best days of the year after new consumer price numbers show inflation is cooling. The Labor Department says the consumer price index was flat in October, while most economists expected a slight rise. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. And joining me right now from Baltimore is Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News. Uh, he's also Senior Fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and uh, he's got over 50 books that he's edited or authored, including titles like the Encyclopedia of Catholic History, the Pope Encyclopedia. Uh, we have a Pope, Benedict XVI. And he's at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops meeting there. Matthew, good to have you. Very good to be with you, and greetings from Baltimore. Yeah. So how's uh, how's it getting off to start? Uh, I would say that uh, they have benefited from the fact that the, yesterday, which was actually the opening of uh, the, the meeting here, was behind closed doors. And that's a pattern that has been set over the last few years, especially from the time that they had the very public disagreement over the question of Eucharistic coherence uh, a couple of years ago. I remember. COVID. Yeah. Uh, and so they have really settled, as I said, into the pattern of starting the meeting with uh, some closed-door sessions. Then today and then tomorrow will be the public session, and then they'll have a final closed-door session on Thursday. So uh, those of us in the media will be allowed in today and tomorrow. Uh, and from that sense, I think they began putting their ducks in a row, uh, which they have been doing again for the last few years. So some of the real back and forth uh, simply hasn't happened publicly. That may happen tomorrow when they put up for vote uh, the question of the what they're going to do with faithful citizenship, uh, forming consciences, uh, in anticipation of the upcoming election, because uh, there has been a move, as you know, uh, to not to change the text, because there simply isn't time, but the introductory note that establishes the tone for everything. That, I'm told, could be a little rancorous tomorrow. Mm, okay. Uh, and will that be because there are those who uh, want to retain language that uh, abortion is a preeminent priority? And there are those who don't want to give it that stature, that That's status. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, you're exactly right, Al. Uh, I've been told uh, by knowledgeable sources, let's put it that way, that um, there really is a push at this point, uh, I think among the majority of bishops, that they, they recognize they need to retain the language of abortion as preeminent, mm -hmm. especially in light of the events over the last year and a half, post-Dobbs, post the overturn of Roe v. Wade. 
uh, that the, the bishops recognize that uh, pastorally and for the sake of their flock and clarity, they need to reiterate the preeminent position of abortion in light of the various ballot initiatives that have been taking place uh, and uh, what seems to have been uh, a certain amount of disarray uh, among the strategic response on the part of the pro-life movement. Mm -hmm. There certainly are going to be those uh, within the, the conference who, as they have in past years, are going to push for a very different orientation of the introduction uh, to use the, the phrase something that, at least in their view, is more consistent with the, the smell of Francesco, is one of the phrases that mm. uh, we hear a lot these days. Okay. Uh, whether or not Pope Francis uh, has demoted abortion, <laughs> which some have claimed, I think, yeah. is a, a point of some debate. Right. right. No, I, I agree. Uh, is uh, Bishop Thomas uh, heading up the pro-life uh, concerns for the bishops? Yes. Yes, he is. So that, He's, uh, he's an outstanding of... man. I I know him, and he's a great communicator. Uh, I would think he, he'll really do a great job. Yeah, uh, so that was part of the votes that were taken today on the election of a number of new committee chairs. Uh, technically, they will be uh, committee chairs elect for the next year mm -hmm. and then assume full responsibilities a year from now okay. when the bishops meet again here in Baltimore. Uh, so one of those committees was pro-life activities, and the two candidates were Bishop Daniel Thomas, as you know, of Toledo, uh, and Archbishop Salvatore Codiglione of uh, San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bishop Thomas uh, won that vote. Uh, I think it was 161 votes to 84. Uh, so he will be the, the new chair. Yeah. Succeeding uh, Bishop Burbage of Arlington, who actually was very briefly serving in this position. Uh, he took over when, I think it was uh, Archbishop Laurie, was elected vice president of the conference. So the musical chairs in some ways uh, in mm -hmm. terms of the committees. Well, very good. Uh, who did they elect a new president? No, uh, that uh, won't be for a bit. Uh, what they did elect was a new secretary. Uh, again, uh, because uh, the Archbishop Brolio was subsequently elected the, the new president. And so Archbishop Paul Coakley, who had been serving in the role of secretary-elect, and that's one of the three really key positions, along with vice president, uh, for the conference, uh, he won quite handily uh, because he's, he has the, the power of incumbency, so to speak, yeah. uh, over Archbishop Sample of uh, Portland. I think it was like 187 to 55. Not a huge surprise. Uh, right. And he found himself in the uh, always unenviable position of having to oversee the vote for his own position. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's got to be a little awkward. <laughs> No. Yes, he, he commented, and one of the candidates says, well, it's me. <laughs> did Archbishop Brolio address uh, the conference? He did. Uh, this is uh, very traditional, uh, that the, the president uh, addresses uh, the, the body as a whole. Uh, we also had, I think, some very interesting remarks uh, from Cardinal Christophe Pierre, the absolute nuncio, which we can talk about in a minute. Uh, Archbishop Brolio really focused, uh, and you can tell that this is someone who brings uh, a wealth of diplomatic experience. He was, after all, for many years a, a Vatican diplomat. He served in the Secretary of State, and now in his role, not just president of the USCCB, but as the Archbishop for the Military Archdiocese, mm -hmm. that this is someone, because of that role with the military, he is keenly aware of the geopolitical realities facing us, 
And in that sense, it, it was a, a grim presentation. And I say that because he moved all over the globe in just a few minutes, talking about the reality, as he put it, of the Holy Land, that the crisis there, yeah. the tragedy there of Lebanon. Uh, he moved on to Ukraine. Uh, he looked at uh, Myanmar. Then he moved over to Nicaragua mm-hmm. and the imprisonment of Bishop Alvarez, the situation in Haiti. Uh, so this, again, it was it was grim, but he made the point that uh, there seems to be no chance of peace anywhere, but we keep praying. And I think that was an important message. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> did he take on <clears throat> a Cardinal... Uh, Pierre's uh, characterization of the church in America? Well, not uh, there was no reference uh, to that interview in his address. Uh, he did speak, I believe, at a presser uh, that he fielded questions after the, the morning session. So uh, he was asked, um, he was peppered with several questions uh, relating to the Synod, uh, the relationship of the American bishops uh, to the Synod on synodality, uh, the interview in America magazine. Uh, He was also asked by someone um, whether he would basically condemn uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, in their use of force. Uh, and once again, his responses were very diplomatic, but he was clear about and very firm about one thing. And he was asked this question about uh, the American Magazine interview. And you and I, I think, talked about this mm-hmm. about a week ago. Yeah. That he was asked if it represents in this magazine, in the interview, uh, the life of the church in the United States as he sees it. And uh, he rebutted the, the, the question by saying it's a rather loaded one. But he said that, uh, no, but he he made an, a very important distinction. He said that at least the way that American Magazine characterized uh, the, the Nuncio's reflections. So it's one thing, and you and I discuss it, and we can talk a, a little bit about those comments again, but he said that it really doesn't reflect the way that American Magazine was interpreting these comments, yeah. uh, the reality of the Church in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's rather disconcerting when there's a, a major disagreement about the state of the Church in America between the president of the USCCB and the papal nuncio. <laughs> you would hope they'd have a similar mind when it came to the <laughs> state of the Church uh, here in the United States. Right. Well, and that's uh, something of an ongoing uh, question that is often posed, uh, especially by, uh, for want of a better way of putting it, progressive Catholic media. Uh, that somehow the conservative American bishops are all aligned against Pope Francis, that they're enemies of synodality, uh, that uh, they have a very political perception of things, that they're right-wing ideologues. And uh, I think even Cardinal Pierre himself in the interview with the American magazine makes the point that, no, he he does not see left-wing bishops and right-wing bishops. Right, yeah. Let me let me uh, we'll leave that, uh, and then I do want to ask: uh, Was Bishop Strickland there? He was not in attendance uh, at the the actual meeting itself, but he is in Baltimore. Okay, uh, to the point where he is actually very close to. Uh, he's basically outside the hotel, hmm. uh, and uh, has been very notable in 
uh, being outside with supporters uh, saying the rosary. Really? Um, and he has talked a little bit to the press, and uh, I would expect that some of those interviews will be forthcoming. That's a little uh, awkward, be, isn't it? Well, it, it's certainly uh, uh, an interesting development. Uh, yeah. There were a lot of questions over the last few days uh, whether or not Bishop Strickland would be attending. Now, for the record, and I, it, this is a matter of uh, the way that the bylaws exist for the USCCB, he has every right to yeah. attend the meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is an emeritus bishop, uh, but uh, the emeriti uh, are allowed to attend any USCCB meeting. Sure. The one key difference is that they cannot actually uh, vote, right. I believe, uh, right. measures, which is something that was imposed. Very famously, there was the story that uh, the bishops were who were retired were bereft, were taken, their, their ability to vote was removed. Uh, but then as the bishops who did that got older, there was a, a brief movement to try to have that restored, because it's one thing to take away votes from older bishops when you're a young bishop, and then another thing that, that when you retire, you suddenly can't. But similar questions were asked about the cardinals who were turning 80 when Pope Paul VI imposed that yeah. rule. But having said that, I think uh, it's safe to say that uh, Bishop Strickland is at present here. I, I can't say that within the the hall itself, within the meeting, that mm-hmm. he has overshadowed everything. Uh, it, there has been no reference to him, no mention. Okay. No, I, would th- I wouldn't think there would be. Um, yeah. Um, but, but is there any sign of a big rally uh, on his behalf? I know some of his supporters were claiming they were going to have a big rally there. We only got about 10 seconds. A, yeah, it's a small group outside the hotel. Uh, okay. That changed, but we'll have to see. All right. Matthew, thanks. We'll talk later. God bless. Dr. Matthew Bunsen in Baltimore at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Fall Meeting. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchak. Just like cars run on gas, families run on time. Here's a simple way you can discover how much time your family needs so it can stop running out of gas. Think of a regular week, not a vacation week, just a normal week, when your family got along even a little better than usual. Ask yourself, how much time did we spend together that week? What things do we do together that we don't normally do? Your answers will give you an idea of the minimum amount of time your family needs every week to function well. Make sure to schedule that first. Learning to put family time first is one of the most important practices Catholic families can have. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Why should we do no work on the Sabbath as the Third Commandment demands? The Catholic Catechism reminds us that in six days the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. On the seventh day he rested, thereby blessing and hallowing the Sabbath. The Sabbath is also a memorial of Israel's liberation from Egypt. The Sabbath is a sign of God's irrevocable covenant with Israel. Thus, the day is to be set apart as holy and for the praise of God, his work of creation, and his saving action on behalf of Israel. God set a model for human action. If the Almighty Creator could take a day off for rest and refreshment, so should his creatures. 
For Christians, Sunday replaces Sabbath observance because it is the day Jesus rose from the dead and ushered in the new creation. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. Have you ever been so grief-stricken and so heart-sick that you can't see God? You can't see God in the tragedy. You can't see God in that cross. You can't see God in that sin. Why? You're enveloped in that grief. You're enveloped in fear. And God is out the window. You don't see Him standing right next to you. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. I didn't take my faith seriously, which which probably means I, I never really got it. To begin with, no, I didn't want to give up sin. I mean, the reason we sin is because sin is fun, but it's it's self-love sin. But it's amazing with God's grace how easy trying to not sin it really is. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Dr. Lee Warren uh, served as a combat brain surgeon for the U.S. Air Force in Iraq. Uh, We've talked with him about his experience there. He described his deployment as a time of personal crisis. He faced not only the very grueling work of being a combat medical personnel, but he also had a crumbling marriage at the time and a serious illness of a family member. Uh, back on the home front. Um, He said his faith in God was in shambles at the time, and he began to see, eventually, how the Lord was working in his life. And that story is told in his book, No Place to Hide. In fact, uh, Dr. Warren and I talked about uh, that experience a few years ago. And I should mention, No Place to Hide was named uh, in 2015 to the U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff's uh, professional reading list. Now, he's entered really uh, in his newest book. He kind of enters a different era. The book is called, I've Seen the End of You, a neurosurgeon's look at faith, doubt, and the things we think we know. And I'm glad to be joined once again by Dr. Lee Warren, brain surgeon, inventor, Iraq War veteran, and writer. Dr. Warren, good to have you back. Hey, Al. Thanks for having me back on the show. It's good to talk to you again. Uh, I think we'll start right with the title of the book, because uh, it's a, by the way, it's a very catching 
It's a very riveting title. So good choice. I've seen the end of you. What is the meaning of that title? Well, this came from a conundrum that I had over the course of my career as a neurosurgeon. There's a there's a tumor, a brain tumor, a brain cancer called glioblastoma multiform. We call it GBM for short. It's easier to say. Mm-hmm. But GBM is a devastating brain cancer, and it's a, a very common tumor in adults. And it has a essentially 100% fatality rate. The five-year survival is almost zero. Ten-year survival is, is really practically zero. Um, and the average survival is only about 15 months. And so when I would meet a patient with this diagnosis, even before I met them, sometimes I would see the scan, the MRI, and I would say to myself, I know what's going to happen to this person. I've seen the end of this person. Yeah. I would just project out in my mind all of the things that I could see, uh, the, the biopsy, the diagnosis, the conversation, the chemotherapy, the radiation, when they would stop eating, you know, when they would go into hospice, when they would die. And I could just see that forecasted out in front of them because mm-hmm. this disease is so predictable. And yet at the same time, as a Christian, the Bible tells me to pray without ceasing and to believe that God can heal and to never stop uh, trusting that God has a purpose and a plan for our lives. And and so I had this problem. How do I sit down and and tell a patient to fight and to pray from my faith when science tells me that the answer is always no? Mm-hmm. And so this this was the question that really drives you. How do you you believe in? How can you pray honestly? How can you counsel them to hang in there when, in fact, you already know that there's going to be a negative answer to that prayer, and uh, you know that basically the death sentence has been read to them because GBM. That's right. You say it's known as the brain assassin. <laughs> which is, again, um, the most malignant, mutated, destructive form of human cancer, you write. Um, Now, how many years was that the question that was plaguing you? Oh, really, for years. You know, I I started my training in neurosurgery in 1995, finished in 2001, and then um, didn't start writing this book until, you know, 2004. 14 or so. Okay. Um, so I kind of grappled with it for years before I finally uh, came to writing it. You you finally concluded, and again, there's a, I want to stress, there's a tremendous amount of very um, pointed and poignant and revealing storytelling throughout this this book. But eventually, you conclude that um, that you're asking the wrong question there. Um, That's right. And the real question is what? Well, I mean, the real question is, how do we live the life that we have before us? Not how do we um, fight for more time in this body or more time in this life. It's about Mm -hmm. moving the goalposts. And, you know, I I came to realize, I'm getting ahead of myself in the story here, but basically just came to an understanding that our life is not a series of events of things that happen to us. Our life really is defined by how we respond to those things. And so learning how to counsel patients to to look at their life um, in a different way, even if we couldn't control the length of it, uh, really is what changed my ability to doctor these people. And did you find that in counseling you were more comfortable in your relationship with them after you changed the question? 
Absolutely. Um, changed everything because, you know, it, it's no longer a matter of, oh, there's nothing I can do for you to how can I help the quality of this particular patient's life be as high as it can be yeah. uh, in every measurable way for the remainder of it? Yeah, yeah. How, how you can help people and also how they can hold on to their faith when it gets when it gets real bad. Um, that's right, or sometimes even find it when they didn't have it before. Yes, that's right. That's right. In fact, you tell the story of Joey in the book. Can you give us a thumbnail yeah. sketch of Joey? Yeah, Joey's a great example of a person who he was kind of a down and out um, person that you might somebody might call him a loser. You know, he was a, a drug addict, a, a kid whose dad abandoned him, his mom died when he was young, and he was um, sort of a drug dealer and just kind of a sort of a bad person if you can put quotes around that mm-hmm. um, in your mind. And he had an encounter with a, a law enforcement officer in which he got kind of cracked in the head and ended up with a skull fracture. So when I met him, it was in the emergency department um, having to deal with this fractured skull. And I took him to surgery, and he's got some bleeding in his brain, and I discover in the midst of the bleeding, he also had a brain tumor, previously undiagnosed. And it was fortunate for him because this was a very early stage tumor, and removing it oftentimes is enough to cure it when if it's already turned into a glioblastoma, those people don't really ever survive. So... I saw that as a blessing for him, but at the time that I met him, he didn't see it that way. He, he saw his whole life as a, a stream of you know bad things happening to him. He was enraged and bitter, and but the story unfolds over time where he encounters the Lord really through his grandmother and through a chaplain and ends up, even though his cancer comes back, I don't want to give away the whole story, but basically he says, the last year of his life was his best year ever yeah, because he great. found hope. He found joy. He found peace from knowing the Lord in spite of having malignant brain cancer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a complete reversal of attitude uh, from when you met him. Yep. Wow. Um, you, tell the, you talk about your own changes really through your interaction with key uh, patients. Uh, there's Samuel. There's Rupert. Uh, there's Eli, um, there's a young woman who commits suicide here. And were you, as you were going through your uh, relationship with them, w- were you aware at the time of how you were changing? Yeah, I, I don't think I was fully aware of it because at, at that time, at that point, I was still thinking that I was sort of studying these people and trying to learn and understand how to be a better doctor to them. Um, but I wasn't experiencing grief and loss and pain with them. I was I was watching them and studying them and learning from them and trying to use that to help them. So I, I think it was later in my life when I really realized that I was in that boat with them. Mm-hmm. You, uh, how important was the realization that, uh, oh, the realization you had with Eli, did that change everything for you? It really did. Eli was the, you know, the, the, the line in my title, the things we think we know, Yeah, that comes down to, um, it's sort of a double entendre in a way that, you know, part of it is I thought I knew a lot about this disease. I thought I knew everything about it. And I thought I knew 
how Eli would find his uh, maker, meet his maker. Um, but Eli is my only 10-year survivor of this disease in my career, <laughs> wow. and he's still alive. And so just, <laughs> you learn that you don't always know everything. You know, I mean, physicians learn that lesson all the time. But this in, in glioblastoma, this is the only time I'd ever seen somebody who so far seems to have survived and beaten this disease. And so I learned um, I learned the medical side of that question. Um, I don't always know everything. And then the flip side of it is the, the, the sort of battle that we think is between faith and doubt often really is that it's between faith and the things that we thought we knew. Because yeah. when you think you know that your wife will always be faithful or that you're going to be healthy or that your kids will outlive you or that your bank account will never go dry, if you think you know those things and your hope is built on those things that can be taken away from you, then if something happens and those things turn out not to be true, it can really shatter your faith. Yeah. It can really destroy your world. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said the wise man builds his house on the rock because the rock doesn't, you know, is, isn't prone to being washed away right. when the storm comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in fact, you're right. Uh, of the three things that affect how we view the world, faith, doubt, and the things we think we know, Doubt would seem to be the most harmful, at least on the surface, but I've learned that doubt is not the enemy of faith. The enemy of faith is often the things we think we know. Um, I, I, I assume all of us have those kind of uh, uh, problems. Uh, you, you, they're kind of a cataract on the soul, I think is what uh, mm-hmm. you describe them. Let's talk about, about that again. Are these assumptions that we make? These things we think we know, are they really? I think they are. Yeah, yeah. I think they are, and I think that's why we so often find ourselves saying things like, how could a loving God let this happen? How right. could God allow this to occur in my life? Or, you know, how could, um, if God's real, how could such and such occur? How could X, Y, and Z come to pass? Because the fact is, God never promised us a pain-free life. And so, in fact, he promised us the opposite. Jesus said, in this world, yeah. you will have trouble. Yeah. But take heart, I've overcome the world, right? So he, it's funny how we we think we can expect, almost demand some things, and there's some branches of Christianity that would tell you that you can demand certain things from God. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, everybody that lives long enough is going to encounter disease and disability and death, because that's, that's why there's a resurrection, right? That's right. why there's right. an eternity. And so if you, if you think you know a lot of things, and your hope or your faith is built on those things being true, then they better be things that can't be taken from you. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think, uh, well, we'll come back and and pick it up from there, because uh, I loved the book, by the way, although I have to say it was really challenging. Um, I I found myself, uh, my my imagination was flaring up through the whole thing. But uh, I want to come back and talk a little bit about this whole expectation we have that life should go well for us uh, and how insulted we are when it doesn't. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Kiro's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. 
Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Crest in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The Eighth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. At one level, the reputation a person has is one of their most precious gifts. And to intentionally harm the good reputation of someone is a very grave matter. We can do this often through detraction by disclosing others' faults without a valid reason or calumny just outright lying about other people, likewise through rash judgment. This commandment also protects the truth, which is another very, very great good. To lie is to speak something that we know is false with the intention of deceiving others. We ought to be dedicated to the truth. It is the truth that sets people free, while errors and lies entrap people in many difficult and often sinful situations. The Lord asks us to give witness to the truth of the gospel. This commandment, therefore, asks us to stay dedicated to the truth and to other people's reputation. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. He always starts with the good things. You know, the seven letters to the churches and the book of Revelation is a great way to write letters to other people, by the way, or to have conversations with other people. You start with what's going well. You do this, this, and this really well. I love it. Thank you. Here's what you're lacking. And I think for many of us as men, what the Lord's communicating at that second part of the letter or the second part of the conversation is, here's what we're lacking. You don't ever spend enough time with me. You have no idea what I'm trying to offer you in the gift of my friendship. Or if you do, you don't make time for it. And if you would but come to me, I would change your life like that. But you don't come. Not with the regularity that I want you to come. Not with the ardor and the fervor and the passion that I want you to come. I have a hunch, like more than a hunch, that's what he says to me. And I got a hunch that's what he would say to many of us. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Lee Warren. His recent book is I've Seen the End of You, a neurosurgeon's look at faith, doubt, and the things we think we know. Um, I, my, I know it's early in the year, but my suspicion is that this is going to be uh, one of the most uh, consequential books that I'll read this year. Uh, 
I found myself grappling with it uh, throughout, and uh, it's incredibly edifying, but it, it will challenge you. And I think uh, I realized, even with myself, who I tend to think of, I tend to think of myself as fairly practical, realistic guy, I found myself uh, reading through the book and recognizing that uh, I think I have approached uh, life expecting that the normal, that normal, normally things are supposed to go well. And even as a Christian, I, I think I've often forgotten that we're living really in a spiritual combat zone. Um, the, world, right. the, world, the world's full of death and destruction and hunger and unmet needs, and yet I'm still insulted when I actually get hit by the, the fall, the sin's fallout. And um, so somehow I should be exempt from what all human beings are subject to. Um, and one of those things is uh, un- what we call unanswered prayer, or when God says no. You point to the Son of God in Gethsemane as where we ought to look when we're grappling with this question. Why don't you lay that out for us? Well, I, I just, I've always thought about the scene in the garden you know, right before Christ goes to the cross, even though he's known for all eternity, like Jesus has known before they ever lit the spark on the earth and humanity, that he was going to have to die to pay for our sins. But yet in his humanity, right before he goes to the cross, he prays, take this cup from me. Yeah. You know, take this away, God. I don't want to go through this. And he, even though he knows the answer is going to be no to that prayer, because he knows that we have no hope, if he doesn't go through with the plan, he still prays it. And it's that it's that moment of perfect humanity where he acknowledges that he doesn't want to go through what he's about to go through, and the only way to, to possibly get a, an answer would be to pray about it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so if Jesus can come to that moment where, he, where he's asking God for something that he knows God isn't going to do, that's a good example for us that we should never— there's nothing that we shouldn't lay before him in prayer, nothing we shouldn't be willing to ask and talk to him about. And that's where I learned in the processing of that from my friend, the chaplain, um, who told me, you know, prayer is not about you getting your answer and your answer being yes. That's not what your prayer is about. Prayer is not about bending God's will to your will. It's about bending your will to God's will. And that sort of shattered things for me, sort of opened things up for me to say, wow, you know, when I'm praying for my patients, it's not let them survive this. I do pray that, and I will continue to pray. That. Mm-hmm. But it's let them come alive. Let them let them find something valuable to hold on to. Let their families improve. Let their spirit get stronger, no matter what the circumstance is that they're going to pass through here. Yeah. Um, you've seen an un- unusual amount of tough stuff Um I'm, I think in our previous conversation, you had mentioned the the line from uh, All Quiet on the Western Front that war ruins us for everything. Um, mm-hmm. t- talk to me about that. Uh, would you you'd be you wouldn't be the man you are today if you hadn't been uh, working uh, as medical combat personnel? Would you? Absolutely not. No, I mean, on top of the effects that it had on me as a surgeon, you know, I grew up a lot as a surgeon because of that uh, that experience. Yeah. But as a as a person, 
like I literally, I was such a control freak that I, I sort of half joked that I think God had to send me to a place where I was going to get mortared and rocketed and bombed and, and just driven to my knees before I gave up the notion that I could control my own life, you know, that I had to depend on God to get me through that. And, and so the, it was a blessing that I got to go and it changed how I look at patient care and my family and all that. And the, and the, the, the curse is that like they, like they said in, in uh, all quiet on the Western front, the curse is it changes how you process things emotionally. It changes how um, you see the world and your mm-hmm. sense of safety and, and all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you came back and you, you managed uh, after some big changes, of course you went through a lot, uh, you did manage to kind of reintegrate and actually go on to be a leader and a force for healing in other people's lives. Um, I think one of the, the the book is powerful, and I didn't know, as I'm reading through it, and I'm going through the stories, the little kind of case studies that you give and the profiles of the people, I mean, I was right, right at the edge of my... Um, the ability to <laughs> stand it. And then you wow. disclose that you lost a son. That's right. While you were writing this yeah, book? Yeah, so, yes. Um, so, you know, like I told you, I was I was studying people and how they grieve and how they handle hard things. And, and I was trying to write a book that I could use to share what I'd learned about helping people navigate hard things. And then on a you know on a Tuesday in August in 2013, our 19-year-old son was stabbed to death, and our world just sort of fell apart. And I went from observing other people's troubles to being kind of in that in the pit of despair in the in the furnace of suffering that Isaiah talked about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, you're you're observing others now. You're suffering in a similar manner. I mean, it's extraordinary loss. And if I recall correctly, you didn't even really get a very good explanation for what happened to Mitch. No, we we didn't. We don't. Um, we won't ever know. Really, it was a small town, and um, my son and his best friend were both dead in the house with stab wounds, and and you know the the police basically made a very cursory examination and came to some conclusions that we can't accept as a family and, you know, put it out in the media and, and all of this. But at the, the end of the day, they cleaned the crime scene, removed the bodies in an hour, didn't call in the FBI or anybody to really criminally investigate it and basically shut it down and we can't know. Um, yeah. So it was sort of like God gave us this impossible scenario where not only did we lose our child, but we can't know how it happened, we can't know why it happened, and there's no possibility that we ever will. Oh. And so that had it was sort of like God just said, you've just got to trust that I can get you through this, and you can't demand answers from me because there aren't any to be had. Yeah, yeah. You write in the book, my experience with all the tumor patients, trauma victims, and personal tragedy that you faced. You say, it's shown me something, um, something I'd missed before. You get good stuff mixed in with a lot of pain, or you get nothing. It's your choice. And the choice is to take it or leave it. 
The trick is to be able to live happily and with purpose, even during those tough times. Uh, then you go over a list of those who you've seen in the life of Samuel and Rupert and Joey. Uh, that, that is, uh, I, I suspect most people would find that to be a little grim. Uh, and they would prefer to not acknowledge uh, that I mean, we want to get through our pain, right? I mean, it, it get, o- get over with it so we can get on with normal life. And yet, you're arguing that a mature Christian needs to live with the understanding that we get good stuff, but it's with a lot of pain. And we, don't, we have a choice. We can accept life that way, or, well, we can end it. Well, that's right. I mean, I, I wrote about that in the context of a, a young woman who committed suicide. Yeah, you know, had a had a bad relationship and a, and a particularly bad night, and drank too much and put a gun to her head, and, yeah. and it came down to the idea that, you know, she couldn't accept the life that she had with all the painful things in it, and she couldn't see that there was a possibility of it getting better. And so I wrote about that Hobson's choice, that yeah. old conundrum of the there was a there was an in, a stable keeper in England named Hobson, and he got tired of the kids renting out the best horses and leaving the the worst ones behind, and the, and the best horses would get worn out. So he made a deal in his stable where you got the horse closest to the door, or you got nothing. You can take <laughs> it or leave it. And so that was Hobson's choice. You can have a horse, but it's the one I'm going to tell you that you can have. And that's really what life is, right? right. Yes. God says, I will give you eternal life. And Jesus said, I came to give you an abundant life in your physical body. I came. The thief comes to steal and kill, kill and destroy in John 10, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And he's talking about now. So the only way you can make sense out of that from the same Jesus who tells you, that life's going to be hard in this world you'll have trouble is to say that the circumstances of our lives are not supposed to rob us of our joy right they're not supposed to rob us of our peace and our ability to see the light again and so that's really the fact al is that your parents are going to die someday god forbid but one of your children or some of your children might die and if you're married you or your spouse are likely one of you is likely to pass away before the other There's going to be hard stuff in this life, and if you're not ready for that or if you're unwilling to accept it, then you just can't – there's no path forward that's pain-free. And so the, the trick has to be how can we be able to live meaningful lives, purpose-filled lives, lives of, of peace and joy, even with hard things happening? Yeah. And I've, as I've studied these folks that get brain cancer and other, other problems, and as I've walked now – almost seven years as a bereaved father, I've learned that the secret is to is you've got to decouple circumstance from your emotional state. So you've got to be able to say, yes, this bad thing happened, but God can redeem that and use it for something that's going to make it have meaning. Amen. That Romans 8.28 promise comes true with enough time and perspective that you'll see there's some good that God can still do in your life despite these hard things that have yeah, occurred. Yeah. And the great good that that Romans 8:28 promise uh, is pointing towards is our ultimate conformity to Christ, right? That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Cuz that's how we can have a hope for an eternity. 
which if you're a bereaved parent, I mean, for me, the only the only way I can keep going is knowing that I'll get to see my son again someday, mm-hmm. that I'll get to see him in his redeemed state and, and get to be with him in a joy-filled environment again. And that's that's what makes me able to take that next step. Yeah, yeah. Very, very good. Um, I, I, I hope you're continuing to write, because this is great stuff. Yeah. What's coming next? Thank you. Well, I'm working on actually sort of a toolkit um, to take all these things I've learned and help people use them in their own lives. Um, this idea of sort of self-brain surgery, you know, how you <laughs> um, can learn how to change how you think about things and yeah. how you look at them. Um, and I'm uh, I'm tinkering with uh, this sort of idea of teaching people how to sort of operate on their own minds. Wow. Well, I'll look forward to it. Uh... Lee, thanks so much. It was wonderful being with you again. And again, this I I really uh, I really hope this book gets wide readership. Uh, I think it's a very it's a consequential volume. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you, Al. God bless, Dr. Lee Warren. I've seen the end of you. A neurosurgeon's look at faith, doubt, and the things we think we know. It's wonderfully written. It's colorful, it's profound, and it will be edifying. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. A conversation I had several years ago with uh, one of our listeners who wrote to me and said she was being challenged by a friend or a cousin or someone regarding the church and various teachings, especially on marriage and abortion and whatnot. And she said, I need the answers and I need them quickly because I want to quiet this person and shut them down. And I wrote her back and I said, I'm not going to give you the answers. I will give you some resources, such as the link to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I said, but you need to look these up and you need to read them over and you need to learn them because this is not going to be the last time that you're going to be challenged or questions about your faith. And what good is it if you're just barking answers to someone and you're not able to explain them charitably? This is a way we all should learn by doing the work ourselves. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Dr. Ray Garendi. Two of the hardest words to say in the English language. I'm sorry. I'll ask couples, when was the last time you said I'm sorry? Oh, uh, I think it was our wedding rehearsal dinner. I, I spilled some coffee on her lap. I said, hey... Sorry about that. Why is I'm sorry so hard to say? What does it mean to you? Are you saying you're a failure? Are you saying I'm wrong? Are you saying if I say I'm sorry, I'm admitting it's all my fault? I'm sorry are two of the softest words in a relationship in the English language. I'm sorry, very hard to say, very easy on relationships. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for being with me. Uh, Wonderful uh, talking with uh, Dr. Warren, and let me remind you, the name of his book is I've Seen the End of You, A Neurosurgeon's Look at Faith, Doubt, 
and the things we think we know. Um, you know, his, his earlier book, No Place to Hide, was named to the 2015 U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff's recommended reading list. That gives you some idea of uh, his uh, reach. Yeah. And uh, so I really, this book, I've seen the end of you, a neurosurgeon's look at faith, doubt, and the things we think we know. Uh, again, it's a real eye-opener. Uh, so the book's available. You go to the online bookstore. We have it there for you. We also have follow-up information in the Crested Guest Archives. We'll also have follow-up information, of course, from my conversation with Matthew about the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops meeting this week in their annual fall meeting in Baltimore. And uh, we'll have follow-up uh, information, articles uh, at AveMariaRadio.net. Just go to the Cresta Archives, Cresta Guest Archives. Now, next hour, I'm going to share with you an interview that uh, Dr. Ray Grendy and I recorded. Uh, we, actually, the idea came out of a conversation we were having. <laughs> Ray's going to talk about the absolute worst things marriage therapists have heard. So join us in the next hour with Dr. Ray Garendi, father of 10, clinical psychologist, public speaker, nationally syndicated TV and radio host. I'm Al Cresta. Stay with me. We've got another hour ahead of us. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, thanks. It's good to be with you again. Another hour ahead of us talking about the things that matter most. Last hour with Dr. Warren, um, you know, again, from his experience as a neurosurgeon, and how his faith is integrated with his work, um, the, the desperate uh, situations that he has to deal with, with people. That's kind of a heavy topic, right? Pretty intense. This hour, we're going to talk to Dr. Ray Garendi and kind of lighten the mood a bit. Uh, you know Ray uh, from the program The Doctor is In that you hear daily on EWTN, Global Catholic Radio. And you may see him regularly on uh, EWTN's Living Right with Dr. Ray. He's the author of many books, including Jesus, the Master Psychologist. Listen to him. And so we're going to ask a question. This is actually a conversation he and I had uh, a little while back, but we wanted to record it because of some com other conversations we were having off the air. And I asked him, what are some of the worst things that marriage therapists hear? And so that's what we're doing. We're going to take time and um, talk about the absolute, absolute worst things marriage therapists have heard. Uh, Ray's you know, done a year of uh, counseling and uh, advice giving and caring. So he's going to join us with the, his thoughts and his experiences as a therapist. And also, we do take a look at how our culture's understanding of marriage and family has changed. And it has. It, it has changed dramatically, uh, even in one lifetime. So that's coming up in this hour. Uh, stay with me. I want to make sure you get a chance to hear Ray. He's at his best. But first, the headlines. 
Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, November 14th. It's the Feast of St. Lawrence O'Toole. Today's news brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. Tensions were running high at a congressional hearing, including union leaders. Oklahoma Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen stood up in an apparent move to challenge Teamsters President Sean O'Brien to a fight. We can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, hold, stop it. Is that your Sorry. solution? Every public. No, no, sit down. You hear Senator Bernie Sanders intervening at the end. He eventually told Mullen to sit down and act like a senator. A bipartisan group of senators is introducing a resolution warning Iran against expanding the conflict in Gaza. If there's an expansion of the war where Hezbollah goes all in trying to overwhelm the state of Israel, the right response for the United States would be to hit Iran. That's Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, who says the measure urges the U.S. to strike Iran if Americans are killed by Iranian-backed groups in the Middle East or if Hezbollah opens up a second front against Israel. This comes as dozens of U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria have been injured in recent attacks by Iranian proxies. A week after desecrating and robbing a chapel in Spain, the thieves have sacramentally confessed and returned the stolen objects. The chapel was desecrated in the early hours of Sunday, November 5th, and the thieves took the tabernacle containing the Eucharist, an altar cross, a chalice, and other items. In sharing the news today, Bishop Jose Manila said, quote, The true solution is repentance. It's returning to the will of God. He declined to identify the perpetrators, citing the seal of the confessional. Stocks are closing sharply higher on Wall Street. New data showed that inflation is cooling and it sparked a broad rally on hopes the Federal Reserve may be done raising interest rates. From your Ave Maria Radio news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me right now, longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Ray Garendi, father of 10, clinical psychologist, public speaker, nationally syndicated TV and radio host. You know him from The Doctor Is In and from the television program Living Right with Dr. Ray. Author of many books, including most recently Thinking Like Jesus, The Psychology of a Faithful Disciple. Great to see you here. Thanks, Al. Face to face. Appreciate it. And I've had the privilege of uh, sitting in your chair there. Yeah. Got to tell you, I feel smarter sitting there. I really do. I don't know what it is. Some kind of IQ ambiance or something. <laughs> yeah, we absorb it through the seat. Is that? Well, I don't want to say that. <laughs> That's a special chair. It's a special... <laughs> I look at. I watch Jeopardy, and I say, you know, I bet Al Cresta would know the answer to that one. Uh, I don't know about that. I do. I when I do get a chance, I do like Jeopardy, though. It is a fun, fun program. Uh, I want to talk to you about your experience. You've been in... How, how long have you been um, in practice? I mean, in, in, Oh, in I don't want to say this because people could do the math. It's well, been 40 years. Oh, that's longer than I thought, too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I started in middle school. I did. <laughs> you're, you're the one that... You're helping all those junior oh, yeah. high... I counted that. Junior high girls have strong self-esteem. It was awfully traumatic because they all liked me as a friend. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know if I've told you this story before, but in junior high, my sister Lynn had a book, 
and she would carry it around with her and she'd ask her friends and really anybody to write in that book what they thought about so-and-so oh yeah can you imagine that my sister did this so um being curious she was, she was years ahead of j edgar hoover <laughs> So she had this book with every, all these people's opinions about their classmates. So I obviously you know, figured out a way to get a hold of the book. Wow, that's and, worth millions. Yeah. So uh, and who, who do you think I looked for first? Me. Well, you. Okay, well, but see, you don't have to do that now because you got social media, and, and now we can, we can do that in massive it numbers. Hap- it does happen in massive numbers. But it was interesting how cruel people could be when they weren't face Anonymous to face with is you. cruel. Yeah. I was driving the other day. And I didn't notice that I had the right-of-way, so I thought I had to stop. So I started to stop, and the car behind me went crazy, <laughs> yelling and screaming, and along with nonverbal signals. <laughs> the next light, I stopped. The driver looks over at me. She was in her 70s. Wow. And I thought to myself, Wow. Would you do this if we were standing in a fast food line and I did something in front of you that was inappropriate or frustrating? Would you do this? Of course not. But she was in that vehicle, and that was enough anonymity for her to go crazy. Wow. Wow. That's seven. That's a lot of energy. And you know what I did? I, you know, Al, trying to be a Christian stops me from doing a lot of things I want to do. Yeah. But not that day. Impulsively. I rolled down my window and I looked at her and I said, you know, you got a big mouth for a little lady. Did you say that to her? Yes, I did. And she looked at me and started cussing me out again. So I figured, well, that one didn't work. (laughs) Power of confrontation. Wow. Oh. Well, in all the years that you've been, you've heard, you must have heard lots of things from clients over the years. Oh, my ears hurt. I want to talk, uh, I I, I saw a survey of some of the absolute worst things, marriage therapists, I guess they're called couples therapists. Well, you know what I haven't heard? What? I've been waiting to hear this. For someone to come into my office, marriage counseling, and say, you know why I'm here? Because it has finally occurred to me. I am extremely difficult to live with. Yeah. And I need help. So my spouse is going to describe all my flaws and I'm going to work on them. Nobody's done that. <laughs> Never heard that one. <laughs> well, the, I, I got a good one for you here. Okay. The guy wants to have a, calls a therapist and uh, brings his wife in and he confesses that he has been on Ashley Madison the site that you go to if you want to have an adulterous affair. And he's concerned about it because he, he wants to, but he doesn't want to. He's ambivalent about it. And he says, but I, I've met somebody on the site that I really want to spend time with and I love. And uh, turns to his wife and says, how does that make you? Or the therapist turns to his wife and says, how does that make you feel? Oh, the, boy, is that, now is that a deep probing question? Right, right. Here's a training to say, how does that make you feel? She says, well, I don't know if I should consider that he wants an adulterous affair or not, because I'm the one he's talking to on Ashley Madison. Oh! 
<laughs> remember that song? What was that? Do you like pina coladas? Yes. You remember that little old lady that I put the one ad in, and it turned out to be the girl that I've been dating. She answered the one ad. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well, that. So he wants to have an adulterous affair with a woman who appears not to be his wife, yeah, but it is. She his looks wife. good on paper. <laughs> um, tell me, what are some of the uh, the most troubling things you've heard. A this, spouse has an affair. Yeah. Comes to light. They're trying to heal. Okay. Within about two to three months after the, I hate to use the word affair. Sorry, that's a slip. Adulterate relation, adulterous relationship. He's upset. If he's the one that had the relationship, he's upset. How long are you going to punish me? Ooh. When are you going to get over this? He's saying this to his aggrieved wife. Wow. Oh, I get that all the time. As a matter of fact, that's probably the main thing that stops the healing because now he's getting upset because she's not gone back to normal. I look, how, at, how, I, I look at these people and I say, do you understand what you did? Do you, do you have any inkling of the damage that you have created? And if you want to heal, I'm real blunt with them, Al. If you want to heal, then you better realize as long as it takes her right. to get over this, you're going to have to live with it, and you're going to have to not say, how long are you going to make me pay for what I did? So, so the answer is as long as she needs. As long as it takes. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing that uh, you would hope that he would be uh, on his knees. He was for about a month. Okay, and then then you need to get over it. I'm trying. I'm trying to put myself in that position, and so you've got to get over it because I've done my pen. I've done. I've I've mandated what my I'm penance sorry. should be. My I'm penance, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I did my penance. Now it's your responsibility to uh, forgive me and grant me absolution. He gets here. mad because she doesn't want to be intimate. He gets mad because she checks his phone. He gets mad because she doesn't trust him. He gets mad because he tries to be nice and she's wary. All of these things he did while he was having this two-year affair. And she is now the villain. Yeah. And sometimes what happens, Al, the complicating factor, he's still waffling. And so he wants to justify the right to go back because his wife oh. is not being easy to live with. So that gives him another uh, well, excuse yeah. to now go out and seek another affair. Yeah. Or oh. the same one. Or the same affair. Yeah. yeah. Affair is a funny word. You, it, it is. It's like a fluffy little word, yeah, isn't it? I just realized that it's a word that I use too. But you're right. We should call it for what it is. It's an adulterous relationship. Yeah. Um, language is, is, we really need to watch our words, don't mm -hmm. we? Uh, I was better off before I met you. Have you heard that? Oh, you know where I hear that one a lot? Where? In Christianity. I was a much I was a much happier person before I became a Christian. Really? Well, yeah, because now I have a I have a measuring stick. Before I'm a I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody. <laughs> I see. I don't cheat big time on my taxes. I'm okay. I define what good is. So I was pretty pretty content with myself. Well now I've got a different standard, and I, I see now I'm not measuring up like I thought, and this is really uncomfortable. And I was, I, I liked me so much better before I became a Christian. You get into a relationship with another person, 
I liked me so much better before I had to learn to compromise and to serve and to look at somebody else's needs. Yeah. Yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah. All I had to worry about was what Ray Garendi wanted. Right. 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 That's that's a really adolescent boy attitude, isn't it? I mean, sure it is. I, I'm thinking. I became a Christian when I was 23, so I have to go back to when I was in my teens to really remember a time where I was without any real interest or concern in Christianity. But I can remember, I was t- talking to one of our uh, producers here earlier today, I said, you know, when I was 17, I, I thought to myself, I was a, I was a hedonist. I mean, I whatever gave you pleasure is fine. As few hassles as possible, go have pleasure. So in my mind, I never thought I'd get married. Why, why limit yourself? And I never thought I'd have children. Why the inconvenience? Think about that. Talk about, that is a 17-year-old boy, uh, immature 17-year-old boy, thinking about reality. And that's what you're saying a lot of these people are. They're basically arrested development cases. They don't really believe that their well-being is found in serving others or in being you know, finding fulfillment in love. If you look at the stats, there are more and more of those. Yes. More and more surveys will tell you the young people don't want to have children, or if they do, they want one for the experience. Uh, they, by and large, don't want to get married. Uh, you look at the stats, under age 35, more are living together than are married, yeah. and more children are born out of wedlock than in wedlock. So their whole moral persona is different. If you take that into marriage, I always say to folks when they are raising a little spoiled brat, I will say, you know, I don't suspect he'll get in serious trouble with the law, but I sure wouldn't want to be married to him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what becomes, I mean, more children being born out of wedlock, that's true. Mm-hmm. We're, over, we're over the 50% mark. Uh, which means then that the a lot of the social controls that used to be in place, the stigmatization, the shame, the, the things that would make you stop and say, I, I, I don't think I ought to do that. Those things are missing. Guardrails are gone. Yeah. Um, and we're... This is the again. It hasn't been that long since we've been living this way, so we don't really know the full social consequences of this shit. The sixties, the out of wedlock birth rate was five percent. Yep. Divorce rate was under ten percent. Yep. This is sixties. Yeah. Divorce revolution begins in the seventies, <clears throat> and it's grown. And we've got, uh, of course, uh, promiscuity has grown. Um, although it is interesting, they're saying now that uh, promiscuity is down a bit because. Uh, because of social media, that uh, people, are, young men in particular, are being satisfied by pornography. Do you do you have any thoughts? On that? <clears throat> Saw an ugly survey. Approximately. Wait, let's pick that up after the break. I hear the music coming up right now. I'm peaking. I'm emotionally peaking. I don't know if I'll be peaking after the break. Oh, hang on to it. Oh, it's gonna be. Tough. You're, you're you're beyond impulse. So, <laughs> Ray Grandy, my guest. I'm Al Cresto. We'll be right back. Father Benedict Groeschel. I want to welcome you, if you're not familiar, with the wonderful world of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
What will America become if it makes it impossible for the Holy Spirit to work here because of untruth and self-indulgence and paganism? This is not just a nice discussion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, because I'm going to discuss what happens when people make it impossible to be prudent, just, or honest, or brave, or courageous, or reverent. When people make that impossible, what a terrible thing they do not only to themselves, but to our society. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. The American Medical Association says informed consent to medical treatment is a fundamental right established in both medical ethics and U.S. law. Patients have the right to receive information and ask questions about recommended treatments so that they can make well-considered decisions about care. When speaking with a patient regarding different procedures and care options, a physician must give accurate information about the diagnosis, treatment, benefits, and risk, and allow the patient to ask questions. Ensure the patient understands the consequences of the treatment alternatives and decide if the patient is capable of making decisions with a sound mind. Document the informed consent conversation and the patient's or their healthcare agent's treatment decision. It is vital to have a healthcare agent who is aware of all your wishes, values, and medical information so that your wishes are respected in the event you are not able to make these decisions at some point. This medical moment brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. You remember the time I said on the air, go to confession. And when you're done, go out and have a big ice cream soda. Celebrate. And a man wrote to me, he said, you know, I hadn't gone to confession in 30 years. Do you mind if I went and had a pizza? I said, oh, have 20 pizzas. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. 
afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Ray Gorendi. Just looking over some of the some of the strangest things, uh, funny, worst, terrifying things that have been said in um, in counseling and therapy sessions with him over the years. We're talking though about social consequences of over fifty percent out of wedlock births and the uh, inability, losing all the social controls of shame and stigmatization that go on with that. Um, where do you think, where do we go? We subset. People will say, well, cultures are like an ice skater. One foot that way, then the other foot goes that way, and we, we kind of recoup and re-recover and the pendulum swings. No, it doesn't. People will say that to me. They'll say, well, you know, we're going to get back to being religion and a faithful. No, we're not. I don't believe that at all. Because if you lose it, you lose it. What tends to happen is that people clump with like. Yeah. So they hang more with like belief systems, homeschoolers, faithful Christians. They start to clump. Yeah. And that's what happens. There's subsets within the larger. And you look at Europe. I mean, that's the way Europe is. They're just tiny little percentages of Christians who clump together, but the, but the whole society goes in a different direction, and secularism basically says we make up our own morals. We live in an interesting society. Think about this, Al. Essentially, anything agreeable sexually is okay. Mm-hmm. It's not only not okay, but uh, okay, but it, ha- it has to be celebrated. You and I have to applaud it. Yeah, every every new gate that gets uh, opened or wall that gets knocked down is celebrated as Except liberation. there is one. There is one that can be demeaned and can be assaulted with impunity. A married woman having more than two children. Mm-hmm. If that isn't the irony of everything turned on its head, I don't know what is. Yeah, well, Norway says they need more children. Prime Minister is issuing desperate pleas to citizens to have more babies. Hungary's Prime Minister is offering zero taxes for families with four or more kids. Europe's having to boost its birth rate. Reality always wins. Yeah. Always. You know, we used to say that in psychology. You, you can deny reality all you want, and you yeah. can run things the way you want, but it's like gravity. You know, eventually you're going to hit the ground. And if God designed reality a certain way, ultimately all of our smartness is going to bite us in the butt. Right. Yeah. Only a matter of time. In your experience, are Christians very good at testing? Are, are, are Christians better at testing reality? They did a survey, I think it was some university in Chicago. They asked whole groups of people, singles, marrieds, divorced, how satisfied are you with your physical life, meaning intimacy? Yeah, okay. No surprise. Guess who? Highest satisfaction. Guess who? Well, I thought it was Christian women. Committed marrieds. Yeah. That's right. Now, that goes totally against what our culture says. Our culture says, Dave will make care, variety, right. have fun, right. Right. experiment. How could, you, how could you lock yourself into one person? But if reality, and we as Christians assume reality is God, says, no, this is the better way to do it, then psychology, for as slow as they are to come to the party, and they are, ultimately says, oh, gee, isn't that interesting? 
married people counter to everything we would think you know i mean she's 57 years old she's 72 pounds overweight he's bald how could they have more of an intimate relationship than that 22 year old stud over there who's bouncing all over the place (laughs) well i agree that we don't have very good uh public measurement for this uh if we don't if we don't draw our standards our ultimate standards from god i i'm not sure where we end up um the the christians generally are i think you're right when it comes to marriage i don't think there's any doubt that what christian church teaches what catholic church teaches conforms with reality the system works um what i'm what i'm what i always struggle with though is what we can do to make that story more plausible it's because it is amazing isn't it when you look at movies look at television the it's rare to find a married couple that um are in love I mean, oh let's put it this way virtually all acts of uh sexual intercourse or implied intercourse are between unmarried couples. Yes. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes. Yeah. So if you, in other words, the quote, the implication is this is the, best the only sex worth yeah. having is, is outside of marriage. Yeah. And, um, and the irony of that, of course, is that from a Christian point of view, the only uh, physical intimacy worth having is within marriage. It isn't a matter of Christian faith that says this is the way to do it because we're Christians and we believe this. Right. It is a matter of social psychology reality. Yeah. And I don't think we say enough of that. I don't think we do either. I, I, I mean, do you remember, you, I'm sure you do, when you remember the, in older days, it was common to say uh, divorce is not a big, children are resilient, divorce is not a big deal. Uh, you should divorce for the children's sake because it's better that they grow up in a divorced home than that they grow up in that a fighting home. That was the major justification. I remember this so well. And then, of course, uh, by the first Bush administration anyways, because I can remember that some of the debate on it. Uh, so it would have been the early, what, 89, uh, 92. Social psychologists finally managed uh, to realize that there were real problems with adult children of divorce. There are over 2,000 studies that now say divorce is bad for children. Right. It took, I mean, I, I don't They're know how many those studies. I was going to say, They're slow to the it party. took, so if the divorce revolution begins in the early 70s, and these studies become popular, I remember a big thing on the, in the Atlantic Monthly about this, um, say, say 90, you're looking at 20 years. It took 20 years for them to finally hmm. get the negative news. The confusion now, sexually, is identities, same-sex attraction, right? and the numbers are exploding. So a good social psychologist would say, are there other factors in this? Right. Is something else coming into play? Ever so slowly, there are little dribs and drabs here and there where experts are coming out and saying, you know, we might we might need to like, take a look at the social component involved in all of this. We see social components in everything else. Right. If there's a suicide in a high school, they send in hordes of counselors because they know there's a greater chance that there could be more suicides. They don't want a contagion. They don't yes. want a copycat. Right. Right. Yes. But, this happened about- in, in a high school in my uh, in my county. 
uh, last year. Yeah. Six suicides in one month in the high school. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. Well, that, uh, I think it was a Brown University researcher who yes, published... Yes, they squashed that. Yeah, she... she really in a fairly mild way said I, we i think there's a contagion aspect to this transgender thing and uh, she was just the, the president of the university i think apologized yeah. for the study yes um it takes a long time for the research to trump ideology yes that's good that's a good way of putting it that's a very good way of putting and it. and even atheists even secularists there's enough in them that searches for truth that it takes them where they go, even if they may not recognize Christianity has been there for 2,000 years. Yeah. I think that's the kicker for me, is that they don't recognize that uh, traditional Christian understanding of reality has just been uh, in, in some way validated and confirmed by their own research. I mean, this ideology gets in the way of good research yes. all the time. I, my favorite example is from the Soviet Union, two gen- three generations ago at least, when uh, the head of their uh, biology research, a guy named Lysenko, uh, d- didn't, uh, didn't accept the, the standard model of uh, uh, g- genetic heredity that we're now comfortable with. He believed much more in the, um, that you could, there were acquired, uh, from external or environmental influences, you could change the biology. Change here. anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it took uh, it took probably two generations for Soviet biology to catch up with the world because of his stranglehold on the on the science. My ten children are adopted. They are, as you would expect, a wide scattergram. We showed you a picture of them last of night. Personality. It looks like the United Nations. <laughs> Is this a club or something? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, my wife and I, up close and personal have seen the power of genetics. Yeah, yes. As we would raise these children with our belief system and our personalities and our home structure, some of them still are, in fact, very much, I don't want to say controlled, but directed by the genetics that they brought to our house. Yeah. And we have not been able to overcome that. Right. Now, part of that is is complicated by their early histories, which had a lot of damage in the mother's uh, mother's in the womb. Yeah, mother's womb. Yeah, yeah. Um, Again, from a Christian point of view, the the material component of our existence is very important. God likes matter; it was His idea. He made us physical creatures, and so there's no should be no surprise to us that the genetic dimension of this has a lot to do with personality. In some respects, it makes people atheists or agnostics. Tell, tell me, keep going. Because yeah. the more that you can quote unquote explain behavior through natural processes, yeah, I see. The implication is, well, everything we've always believed about free will right, right. is really getting getting pushed aside. The science is showing. A small example: my wife sent me an article just last night about this fellow who dove into a pool hit the bottom, had brain damage. He is now a virtuoso pianist. Prior to that, not a thing. He couldn't couldn't do a thing on the piano. He was useless. He sat down, this was some period of time after his injury, and just started to play. Really? Incredible playing. Now, somebody looks at that and says, okay, maybe we are just a bunch of chemicals. Maybe those chemicals just 
splash against each other in their own way. And this particular guy took a butt on the head, and he somehow knocked into play some musical ability chemicals that were sort of buried. You know, when you start looking at stuff like that, right. you, you, you get confused. I looked at it and said, wow, that just tells me the intricacy of what God created. Yes. Yeah, you, you, and also, you, he has to have personal exertion. If he's going to be a virtuoso, he has to be telling himself, I have to practice. i got to sit down. Right. Hold it there, Ray. We'll come back and continue conversation. Dr. Ray Garendi, my guest. I'm Al Cresta. We're back in just a few minutes. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. People think it's easier to stay in the muck. The devil that we know is easier than the devil we don't know, but what they don't realize is that the situation can get worse. And what we're seeing now with some of these very liberal orders, let's say, for example, these liberal orders that are dying out, especially religious sisters, dying out, literally folding. And then you have the religious orders such as the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, the Dominican Sisters in Nashville, the Sisters of Life in New York, flooded with requests for information and to meet with the sisters about this beautiful life because they're so joyful because they are living the truth of Scripture and the truth of the Eucharist of Jesus. But these people will not let go because then you have to look yourself in the mirror and then you have to surrender. I think it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Who's God? Are we God or is God God? Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Does the fourth commandment only order us to honor our father and our mother? 
According to the Catholic Catechism, it also obliges us to give honor and respect to all whom for our good God has vested with his authority. Respecting the fourth commandment, says the Catechism, brings its own reward, not only with spiritual fruits, but temporal benefits of peace and prosperity, whereas failure to observe the commandment brings harm to individuals and communities. We are reminded that marriage and the family is ordered to the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of children. The Catechism states a man and a woman united in marriage together with their children is what forms a family. God instituted the human family when he created man and woman and instructed them to increase and multiply. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Ray Gurendi, clinical psychologist, public speaker. You know him, of course, as host of The Doctor Is In and Living Right with Dr. Ray. Um, you're a, you've been a therapist for 40 years. Um, you've seen difficult things. We've been talking about that. You come across couples who have marital difficulties, and you recognize that Wow. Uh, they've got contempt for one another. They don't have respect for one another. Personalities are very different. Uh, what happens when you think that maybe they shouldn't have gotten married in the first place? After two or three sessions, maybe four, you start to get a clearer picture. And you think to yourself, what brought these two together back when? Yeah. Typically, it's all the wrong stuff. All right. It's impulse physical attraction, it is fun together, whatever it was. And they didn't know all the stuff involved in living together. And little by little by little, their personalities just scraped all kinds of scabs and scars all over their personas. And I think to myself, I don't say it outside, out loud, but I think to myself, boy, oh boy, oh boy, they married the wrong person. Yeah, They really married the wrong person. Now, there's two levels to this. One is the Christians. Committed Christians will say, well, I'm, I'm in. I mean, I can't, I can't go anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. It's not going to happen. Less often you get both of them saying that. Typically you get one of them saying that. Okay. I'm not leaving. It's not going to be me. I'm committed for life. Yeah. Then you get the non-Christians who really don't care. Eh, what the heck? I can leave. I got a moral compunction about leaving. At that point, people say to me, how do you deal with them? They're there. They're thinking, bah, yeah. why waste the effort? What I do is I take them through the complications of what will happen after the divorce, mm-hmm. especially if they're children. Yeah. I might say something like this. Well, okay. How old are your kids? 14, 12, and 9. All right. So when you leave her, you understand that if she marries another man— or lives with another man, uh, he is going to have at minimum 50% influence over your children. And you have said she's not a good disciplinarian, so she'll pretty much let them watch whatever they want to watch and do whatever they want to do. Now, can can you live on that? And furthermore, what if that 14-year-old at age 16 says, I don't like going to my dad's house. It's boring. I don't want to go. Mm-hmm. And I'll figure out ways to sabotage it. So you really won't be seeing your son anymore. So I take him through all of this because they don't think any of this. 
They just think, well, it's Escape. better. Yeah, I'm yeah. better out of here, and then everything else will just fall into place. And it never does. Interesting study done. I saw this survey, Al. If a spouse dies and the marriage partner raises the children as a single parent, their adult adjustment is no worse than if they were raised by two. Oh, it's, that's interesting. It's the dynamics of the divorce that cause the trouble. So loss by death, loss by divorce are not quite the same. No, they're not. Because you don't have you don't have all the complications. They both of, hurt, of, but they're different. Of, of other parents. You yeah. don't have the complications of other half siblings. Yeah. You don't have the complications of wildly diverse parenting. You don't have a complication of remarrying, and now he has a six year old son that he favors well over my nine year old daughter. Yeah. You don't have any of that. Yeah. That's the factor. Hmm. Uh, over the period of time that you've been uh, doing therapy, uh, have you seen? changes within the Christian community, Christians who present themselves for therapy, have their attitudes changed in accord with the world's? I'm getting to the point now where I'm able to select who I want to see. Oh, I see. Okay. And because of that, I am much more inclined to accept people that have some kind of Christian sensibility yeah. so that we can work within that moral system. Well, your original research from years ago indicated the importance of faith for holding families together. But we were told, as psychologists, you do not bring up religion, you do not talk religion, you do not talk morals, you do not talk values. Yeah. This is all therapy neutral. Yeah. I remember even then, as a 24-year-old, thinking, how can you do that? <laughs> How does that happen? I've, I've, I've always thought the same. You know, you, you can't talk about the the one thing which is is central to a person's life, yes. or at least, you know, it makes the claim that it ought to be central to well, a person's life. Well, even if you life. think it's nonsense, it's still their world. Exactly. And as a therapist, you're supposed to get into their world. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and have said, we had therapy, but our therapist was a secular therapist, and he couldn't relate to anywhere where we were coming from. And all the research says the number one healing component in therapy is something they call the therapeutic alliance. In other words, it's so powerful that that therapist understands me. I feel a connection with that therapist. It is so powerful that it overrides the particular approach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, that's right, because it's the strength of the relationship. And again, this comes back to, I think, I, my own opinion is that this has a lot to do with un, how Christians under, were made in, in the image and likeness of God. And human beings, when they're relating to one another in helpful, serving, honoring ways, it's healthy. It's a good thing for us to be in relationship with a people helper who, who understands us and has insights that they can share with us, or they can help us uh, prescribe uh, a pattern uh, of uh, for for our future. Uh, do you do you think that uh, Christians entering the field of therapy over the last generation has been good for the industry, so to speak? They've been beat up. I cannot tell you how many have come to me and mm-hmm. said, "I am in a graduate program where I have to keep my head down." So that's still the case. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, even probably more so. 
because they are told to accept whatever sexual variety is there, no matter how miserable the client comes in. And Wasn't says, there a period of time, though, where the, the, the people were, the, the things were softening up? There was a recognition, you know, after the, the, there was humanistic psychology that came in, which kind of beat back the behaviorism and the Freudianism. And there was a, for at least a period of time, there was a respect for what you were saying earlier. You have to get inside the world of the client. Uh, and, and um, but I thought that's when we had uh, these big Christian Association of Psychological Studies coming up and all those groups. I think there's been a resurgence. Ideology. Of, of the secularist. Ideology yeah. is very yeah. powerful that's, in our that's, culture now. That seems, that seems to be true. Uh, and there, there are, too. for example, yeah. certain therapists that you can't do certain things. Um, for example, in some states, if someone comes in and says, I'm very, very dissatisfied with the, with the sec- same-sex life I've been living, well, you're not allowed to treat them. You can't. So even if the client presents yes. the problem right. of I'm I'm yes. I have same sex attraction, I don't like that. Yes, I, uh, I, I, it's caused a lot of trouble for me. I I want to learn how to live with it in a better way. Uh, there there are some places you can't you can't. Wow. Yeah. Uh, when do you think that? When did you see that resurgence of the secular in such a hostile way? I know in places it's always been there, but yeah. I mean it seems to be very ideological. I think it's recent. It's ten years. Yeah. It's see, recent. I think it. I, I I see the rise of the new atheism directly related to the to nine eleven, uh, because the Hitchens, um, uh, Dawkins. You see what religion does. Yes, and 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 that became the new uh, and social media growing up at that time too. I think began to give the secularist, the atheist, a kind of a bite that they had lost. They were kind of toothless for a while, and now their fangs have come back. And the, and I see it's showing up many, many different places, and it's being recognized, I think, by Christians uh, more and more. But So therapists now, so in your own field, oh, sure. the young Christian therapists are having, or aspiring therapists are having trouble. Aspiring therapists are very much having trouble, and I tell them, you've you got to do what you can. And they say, well, I, I can't keep my head low because, because we are required to practice a certain way. We are required to say certain things on papers. We have to. That is the, the enlightened way to view things. The, the, um, so, so they're back to believing this kind of uh, universal, that they have, that they know reality. Yes. That's uh, the irony of this. Yes. Is, it's incredible because these are the people who generally don't think that there's any final or ultimate reality. That's the irony. Yeah. Im, Im, I always say this, Al. Immorality is illogical. Right. right. It is incoherent. You can't defend it using logic. Okay, I am open to all worldviews, except those other than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, uh, no, nobody's a perfect relativist because they have to always have some place they're standing by which they're evaluating what's going on around them. Uh, nobody relativizes themselves out of the discussion. Um, it's like the old, who was it that, I think it was Chesterton that said, when you run up against somebody who says there's too many people in the world, ask them one question. <laughs> How are you so sure you're not one of the too many? <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. Um, 
you you uh, many people know you, of course, as as a as a uh, advice giver, uh, therapist, but you're also quite a skilled as an apologist too. That's a side view that people don't often know. It was forced upon me. Tell me about it. When I left the church, I was a new atheist. Uh, the old atheists make logical sense. There's no God, therefore I can pretty much do what I want. The new atheist, there is a God, but he thinks just like me. <laughs> and that's how I drifted into the... I was a Christian still, but Catholic, Methodist, Evangelical, yeah. come on, let's all just kind of get along, and then God's God, Jesus is Jesus. Yeah. And as I got further and further into the Protestant world, I became more and more distressed at what I saw as all kinds of self-contradictions, things that didn't hold together. I'm an engineer when I was first educated. So I can't say, Al, you have your formulas and I have my formulas. We have right. to agree to physically disagree. Right. No, because somebody's bridge falls down. Right, right. And I couldn't handle that with religion either. I thought there's got to be some ground for truth here. Right. And I started just digging and digging and digging and digging and digging. And I used to beg God. I used to say, just give me faith. Just give me faith. Please. You said, ask. Okay, I'm asking. And it never happened in, on my timetable. And what I found was, he's smarter than I am. <laughs> he knew that I would keep digging. And in that digging, I there's not too much somebody throws at me that I haven't struggled with myself. Yourself. You haven't already passed through yourself. Yes. Ray, let me thank you for being with me, and uh, we're glad you did all that digging, by the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Dr. Ray Garendi, again, listen to him regularly on The Doctor Is In. I'm Al Creston. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're on a football team, you don't want to just run up and down the field holding the ball and never cross into the end zone and get a touchdown. We want to reach our goal, but there are a lot of obstacles, discouragement, and challenges along the way. Jesus' voice is the one calling us to say yes to him, to live the life that he is calling us to live. We have to choose one way or the other, choose him or not. But if we choose him, we will be opposed. We're going to have people challenge what we believe or call us crazy. But Jesus doesn't just say, come follow me, to follow a beatitude. He's calling us to be like himself. He is the beatitudes. He doesn't just say, do what I say. He says, come follow me. He's with us every step of the way, transforming our weakness into strength. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For more about the beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Christ is the Answer, with Father John Ricardo. We just did our parish mission a couple weeks ago now, and I suggested that in the course of the mission that we do something like a, a little mini spiritual assessment of our lives. I don't have to show this to anybody, but a great chance for us just to, with real honesty, just between us and Jesus, ask ourselves some questions. First question, given the fact that half of Catholics don't think God is even personal, would be to ask ourselves that. Do I think God is personal? And then to ask myself, do I think a relationship with Jesus is possible? Do I have a relationship with Jesus? And if so, what's it look like? And then perhaps a little bit more awkwardly or painfully to ask Jesus from his perspective, what's the friendship that we have with him look like? How would he describe our friendship with him? That might be a hard conversation to have.
Well, thanks so much for being with me. Uh, I'm Al Cresta. You can follow up on the conversation. I'm going to AveMariaRadio.net. Uh, take a look at the books that Ray has produced. Uh, I think I think he, his favorite is Jesus, the Master Psychologist. Listen to him. Uh, that's available, of course, in the online bookstore. You can also visit him at DrRay.com. A few interesting things uh, going on in the Middle East. Uh, Palestinians, of course, desperate. But one of the things that's happened, I don't know how big this is going to get, but desperate Palestinians have begun attacking Hamas security forces. You know, you've got these chronic shortages of food, water, medicine, and many Gazans blame Hamas for this. It's not that they're friends with Israel. It's just they wouldn't be without food, water, medicine uh, if Hamas had acted like a, a, a true na- uh, government. Um, anyways, there's stories that are being published now uh, showing Palestinians, I don't want to say rising up, but at least in a number of places, um, knocking down the authoritarian rule of Hamas. Is it beginning to crumble? I hope so. Uh, because Palestinian people need help. And as long as Hamas has their iron grip on the Palestinian people, uh, I think the Palestinian people are going to be shortchanged, to put it mildly. So follow up on our conversations today by going to AveMariaRadio.net. Again, AveMariaRadio.net. Check out the online books through there where you you can get Dr. Warren's book, I've Seen the End of You, A Neurosurgeon's Look at Faith, Doubt, and the Things We Think We Know. And, of course, with uh, Ray, uh, you can get Dr. Ray Gurindy's books there as well, including Jesus, the Master Psychologist. Listen to him. I'm Al Cresta. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.